Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Rich Newsom, who is the president of Mercer's Investment and Retirement Business. Rich, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. So given your background across investment consulting and working with manager of manager style investment programs um, and platforms, you come across a lot of issues that affect uh, the global investors. Many trends that are now, I guess, front of mind for, for investors today are things like geopolitics and climate change. What are the particular trends that you've been looking at more broadly that are affecting fiduciaries today? With a long-term investment time horizon in mind, I think there's six. You already named two of them. And we recently did a survey of about $4 trillion worth of asset owners. And, and the way they ranked them was on a multi-decade investment time horizon, climate change, number one. The impact of low long-term real interest rates was actually number two. Uh, technological evolution and disruption was number three. And then um, geopolitics, as you said, then demographics, and then water security. So th- those are the six kind of major long-term trends that, that institutional investors are focused on. You know, if you if you take a shorter time horizon, then, then the calculus changes. But when they're thinking about their strategy for a multi-decade investment time horizon, those are the six that they want to have a strategy around. Let me pick up on probably the, the most... I guess, I don't know how to describe it, the most difficult one um, in terms of low long-term interest rates or low uh, real um, interest rates, it's a real challenge because for a lot of funds, they've been able to run a balanced portfolio and be able to meet their return target quite easily. We've now seen you know, multi-decades of lower and lower interest rates, which has actually helped to support the equity prices um, and any derivatives of, of equity across private equity, for example, infrastructure and so forth. So people have done really well as allocators and taken advantage of the tailwind from low interest rates. But now we've come to an issue where how do you allocate in such a challenging environment um, and there's almost no appetite for any uh, increase in interest rates. So you've got this real um, issue that starts to come to come to bear for, for fiduciaries. How, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a real challenge, and it depends on the sophistication of the fiduciary body you're working with. Um, some fiduciaries feel pretty good because equities are near all-time highs. As you said, interest rates have dropped pretty much for 30 years. A, a bit of a bit of backing up in the last few weeks on, on nominal long-term interest rates. But when you look forward, it's not likely that we'll get the public market equity returns, and certainly not the bond returns that we've had during our working lifetime. And so, what what most fiduciaries and asset owners are trying to do is to increase their allocations to alternative asset classes, private equity and debt, um, real estate, infrastructure, esoteric and opportunistic alternatives, but get a hold of the liquidity premium and the complexity premium of being involved in those asset classes. And in those asset classes, by definition, you can't invest on a passive index fund basis. So they're also trying to capture as much of the skill premium as they can. Um, historically, those asset classes have performed well. It's been hard at times to keep up with publicly traded equity markets with interest rates coming down. But on a forward-looking basis, th- those asset classes look particularly attractive and, and particularly if investors long-term focused. 
It's interesting, you know, you talk about people moving to more of the alternatives. Is there a now, I guess, an additional risk that, that fiduciaries have to sort of take on as they start to move into these asset classes that historically probably they didn't need to with, with interest rates being sufficient for them to run a balanced portfolio? Well, there's huge governance challenges associated with moving into the alternative asset classes because of the complexity and because the gap between the best performing general partner or investment manager and and the less well-performing GPs or investment manager can be so high. Just one of the governance challenges is what we refer to as single line item risk. If, if as an asset owner, you're going to move into private equity or hedge funds, you're inevitably going to make an investment that goes to zero. You know, that that happens in, in those spaces, and it's, it's part of investing in those spaces. And it can be very difficult after the fact to explain with benefit of hindsight to stakeholders how you could possibly have made that investment in an Australian almond, almond farm during the peak of the California drought, or I don't know actually you know, how almond farms is done. But some of these, some of these investments um, are very niche and very focused on a particular theme, and, and they're not all going to work out. And on the, on the publicly traded stock side, we invest in diversified stock portfolios, and we understand some publicly traded companies are going to go bankrupt. And when that happens, except to the extent that it impacts the overall return of the portfolio, you know, the stock manager doesn't typically take a beating. But with private equity and hedge funds, our, our stakeholders tend to be less familiar with those. And when an individual investment goes to zero, there can be a lot of, a lot of after-the-fact second-guessing. The challenge with that is if, if you go into the asset class and then when things go wrong – there's a desire to get out because you you don't have the liquidity. The secondary market trades at a huge discount to to what you would have bought at, and and so when you go into these asset classes, you need to have the governance and sophistication that when when a single investment doesn't do well, the the governing bodies and stakeholders are going to look at well how's the overall performing portfolio performing in context, and and really look to look to buy in, look to diversify, look to stay for the long term. But it, it can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So complexity issues, fee issues, account minimums, capital calls, th- there's just a lot more moving parts with alternative asset classes than, than publicly traded equity. Let's stick on the theme of complexity. Um, geopolitics is uh, one of your other key issues for, for investors to consider. This is extremely challenging, um, particularly as a number of fiduciaries around the world are now almost seen as surrogate sovereign funds, if not directly. Um, that's how they act. Uh, likewise, in Australia, for many of the super funds, this they're somewhat seen as almost a de facto sovereign style system. Um, and there's always more and more pressure around how they invest and making sure that they are investing for the best interest of members and also that they're investing um, somewhat in building the country. Now, that's not explicit in the rules, but there is this uh, inference that, that's there. Now, curious to get your thoughts around... Um, one of the other issues you mentioned is water security. How do you then potentially take into consideration some of these geopolitical issues where food security is a, is a big issue? Climate change is also another big issue. But how do you align the financial returns vis-a-vis this, you know, these key strategic um, investments that need to be made, for example, in water security or around reducing um, carbon emissions, for example, or in the case we've seen recently in the US around investing in uh, silicon chips um, sem- and semiconductors. So some of these things are, are really key investments that are needed for um, the country, obviously, to function properly. And at the same time, fiduciaries are being sort of pulled along the line to be almost partners. Curious to get your thoughts as to how that plays out. 
Yeah, um, I think you've done a good job of, of overviewing the complexity of it. I think the first thing to understand is that different asset owners, depending on their governance and their stakeholder bodies, are going to have different objectives and play this in different ways. So if an asset owner is purely return focused, they just want to maximize the risk adjusted returns, they're still going to take a view on climate change. They're still going to take a view on water security because the game then is to be early and be right and outperform. And so if you think that the world economy is going to transition to lower carbon over time, you want to get your money in the ground. You want, you want to make, you want to make your investments in that transition ahead of time. And then as other stakeholders or consumers or voters, as, as society evolves toward to share that view, you already made your investment, your investments get bid up, you get a better return than if you'd waited. So purely return risk-oriented investors are investing in, in climate transition and in, in water security purely on an economic basis. We then have other investors who are still economically oriented but what they're part of the view they're taking is that of a universal shareholder, meaning that they're going to hold global index funds. They're going to be globally diversified. They're going to own a share of the global economy. And for them, the impact of climate change is not an externality. If, if the climate changes radically or if, if government policy changes quickly in response to climate change, that'll produce an economic shock that impacts their entire portfolio or a physical shock that impacts their entire portfolio. And in extreme circumstances, they just can't achieve their investment objectives because if, if the planet is destroyed, you know, your investment returns really don't matter. So um, they'll, they'll invest in climate and water, not just for the returns, but also to fix the problem. If, if, they, if they make the investments in clean technology, and so the, the cost of renewable energy goes down, it becomes more competitive with carbon burning technology, and so economies that don't even have regulation around this shift to lower carbon, well, then they're, they're fixing the problem, the underlying problem, and they never get that, that physical economic shock that's threatened to their portfolio. So at the larger, more sophisticated end, we have investors who have that dual focus, still purely return-oriented, but they're trying to be early and be right to outperform. And they're also trying to fix the problem because that, that mitigates some shocks. Um, and then we have investors where their stakeholders have expressed a view that you you are going to do the right thing. You are going to try to help fix the problem. And and so then we get double bottom line benefits. We get impact investments, things that aren't necessarily predicated just on risk and return. But but those investments raise the returns to the first two types of investors and help solve the issue. So it, it all works together. But I, I think when whenever we're working with an investor, we try to clarify our first what are your objectives? What do your stakeholders expect? How are you coming at this issue? And, 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 and in which asset classes can you play? It, it's tougher to play these themes in the public markets. It can be done. Whereas if you can invest in private equity, real estate infrastructure, venture cap, you know, there's much more direct ways to play these themes. It's interesting because that's also another balancing act that fiduciaries have to think about because they do have some maybe very clear views around um, how to invest in the future of renewables, for example. That's one, one clear clear place that they'd like to make the investments. But at the same time, they always need to keep their fiduciary hat on um, and actually what makes sense from a return perspective. And so with their set investment objectives that they, they need to hit, there is this challenge um, around how much to allocate and what can they actually do. Um, and so I'm curious around that sort, that sort of conversation, particularly as the renewable space is very fast moving. There is going to be some pretty big losses in, in some of these businesses that, that come along 
um, you know, in, in the solar uh, farms, for example, some of the wind farms have, have done poorly. Others have done okay. But at the same time, in this great transition, there's actually is quite a lot of inherent risk because of the the, the speed of technology change. How do you think about that that sort of um, uh, balancing act? Well, the easy answer is diversification. You know, picking picking the winner in a new technology sector or picking the winner across technologies when you're trying to do something like solve climate change can be tough. If you're able to spread your bets, either either by investing in in funds that are more diversified than you could get on your own, or or by investing in companies that have multiple um, bites at the apple or stakes in the water to try to to try to lines in the water to try to um, catch the fish of climate change technology, you know whatever it is, diversification I think is is part of the answer. You you kind of framed it as a choice between um, pursuing returns. And, and trying to address climate change or address the policy issue. And, and most of our client base doesn't see it as a choice because they're taking a long enough time horizon that they're very confident that this has to be addressed. And, and I'll, I'll give you a metaphor that might help. Um, on the technological evolution side, we recognize that the internet was invented in the 1980s. It was, you know, kind of widely recognized by 1989, 1990, when the World Wide Web was established as a label. And yet, three decades later, we're still going through a digital evolution in the real economy, and it, it's still, you know, changing things day by day. Um, on on climate, we've got decades of transition still ahead of us, and so if you're trying to be early and be right, your your timing is not really at issue. You know, the earlier, the better, the more right, the better, but you have decades to play this theme and to try to get ahead of it and, and participate. So if you're diversified and you're not path dependent, you, you can tolerate some volatility in your results. You know, sooner or later, you, you can you can expect some returns with a great deal of reliability, we feel, because sooner or later, the, the world can't let, you know, our, our electorate for democracies, our customer base for capitalist society, won't allow the the worst cases to emerge. At least we're optimistic enough to think there will be policy change, there'll be consumer shift. So if you're investing in companies that are going to take advantage of that, sooner or later you'll be proven right. Having said that, one of the counterintuitive things is that when we get good news on the climate change front in terms of underlying science or what's actually going on with carbon emissions, it's really bad news for our investments. So I'll give you a specific example there was a big round of, of clean tech investment following the publication of our first uh, global climate change asset allocation study. And we'd had clients put money into clean tech and then the fracking uh, revolution happened in, in the US. And carbon emissions actually dropped for year two globally because natural gas pushed out coal in the, in the supply chains. And that was, that's good for the climate. That's unambiguously good for the climate. Emissions went down. But it killed that particular vintage year of clean tech investments because they were predicated on a certain price of oil and and coal and and with the fracking revolution the price dropped. So it's sort of like you buy insurance on your house and you you don't buy it hoping the house will burn down. And if if you go a year and the house doesn't get damaged, you might look back and say, well, I wasted money on insurance. But sooner or later, you're going to, you know, you or your descendant is going to benefit from having that insurance coverage. And, and in the case of climate change, the damage to our portfolios will be so catastrophic. We don't even have to wait for the physical change. If, if the government policy shift is very sudden, 
It'll be a stagflationary shock. It'll kill returns to all of our traditional asset classes. None, none of our asset owner clients can stomach that scenario easily. And so if we actually manage to put enough money in clean tech investment, hopefully those give good returns. But if we solve the problem, that's going to help the rest of the portfolio. But that, that portfolio argument's a bit subtle. And, and, you know, when we see something happen, like um, clients, you mentioned solar farms, so clients invest in solar panels and the cost of solar panels drops by 90%. Some of those investments don't pay well, but now we've got solar panels available at 10 cents on the dollar. We're going to make much faster progress solving climate change and, and the chance of the sudden policy shock recedes, you know, that that's good news for the rest of the portfolio that, that we should all celebrate that technological evolution. Even if one of our holdings, you know, didn't do well because it was, it was predicated on a certain price for solar panels. There's an interesting corollary to all this. And that is the fact that you mentioned sort of fracking and fracking actually is, hasn't been as sustainable um, as, as most people know. And likewise, financially, it's had a lot of challenges. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, fracking sites have been closed down of late, um, and the investment in traditional energy has has gone down. Um, and ultimately, there is a bit of an inverse relationship that comes alongside that, um, as as capital is not being allocated to those traditional ways of energy. We now have potential that you can have higher returns in traditional forms of energy. So you've almost got this real chicken and egg situation throughout the transition where. We've seen oil prices really um, pick up of late. Despite the economy not picking up, energy prices have increased because the capital allocation to the space has has been dropping. So that's a, that's a challenge, I guess, for fiduciaries as they look at they look at their return um, objectives and they also think about climate change more specifically. But if you look at commodities, um, these particular issue, these particular um, areas um, of investment are now maybe looking favourable, but then potentially not ticking the the ESG box, a hundred percent. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Um, I'd react on on two lines or or two dimensions. First is there is an argument being made by some in the industry that as some investors pull out of certain investments and their cost of capital goes up, that actually is going to attract other investors because it, those investments now have a higher expected return. I think that's true if you don't expect customers to penalize those companies for being more brown and less green, or, or you know, if it's in the diversity space for not being rainbow friendly. Um, but if you think that customers or employees or regulators, communities, sooner or later they're gonna they're gonna do something that that changes the terms of trade for that particular technology or that particular company. Sooner or later they're gonna do something that says look, you just can't burn coal anymore, no matter what. We're not, we're, we're going to intervene. We're going to raise the effective price of burning coal. If, if you think that that will happen on our multi-decade transition towards, towards a greener economy, then, you know, you care about future earnings. So you have to take that, that likely future earnings shock into account when you look at what the expected return is on that asset. Look, another another area that I think we really need to talk to is demographics. You know, you mentioned it as one of the key um, trends that that are influencing the global investors. Um, there's a fascinating piece to that because there's all the benefits from demographic trends um, as we think about healthcare and the particular sectors and themes that we can invest in. There's also another issue when we think about demographics in terms of the the markets ultimately, right? And that that ties back to return 
return streams that are possible. Um, we've also seen this huge wage of retirees coming through, particularly in Australia. I'd say it's be very similar in the US as well, as these people are looking to switch their assets to more income generating um, style of investments. How will that potentially change the opportunity set and how investors need to actually allocate so that they can actually provide for demographic change in terms of more retirees, but at the same time, not destabilizing the market? Yeah, great questions. Um, I think we, we tend to look at that with a global mindset in mind. So, so your marginal investor, take Australia's example, your marginal investor in Australian equity and fixed income is probably not your retiree locally. That, that those relative costs of capital are set on a global basis in arbitrage with other developed market currencies and bonds and, and other developed market equities. And so we really need to look at global demographics as opposed to one country if we're looking at what's going to drive the capital markets from a valuation or supply-demand standpoint. Where, where for an Australian investor, what's happening in Australia would be relevant is what's going on with the labor force availability of labor with certain skills and therefore what's going on with local GDP growth, because that will impact the ability of the government to repay those, those bonds and, and what, what companies that are headquartered locally can generate from the Australian economy. And um, that's where a change in immigration policy, uh, change in sort of common practice around do individuals phase into retirement or do they retire suddenly can can have a big impact. And it can be counterintuitive. Australia moved many years ago to mainly a member choice defined contribution basis for most of the savings. And and one of the um, potential downsides of that is when you've got a bull market run up and people get higher account balances, they may retire in droves and and because they're now financially secure. And and that's self-correcting because as they retire, if they do shift their asset allocation, they can become the marginal investors and, and move prices. But you know, you don't you don't have a steady wave of retirements. You can have a peak after a bull market, and we don't know yet globally how much of that we're going to see versus phased retirement and and something more gradual. And you know, workers being willing to continue to participate if wages go up and demand for labor is higher or more willing to retire if wages have dropped and demand for labor is lower. So flexible retirement's a big question on the horizon in terms of what it does for capital markets. But I think I think the very short story is to focus on global demographics, not local, if, if you're looking at what's going to drive capital markets. And, and global demographics are still, it's, it's a young planet, there's plenty of labor, you know, birth rates have fallen, but we're still a bit above replacement rates. So it's not, the, the world doesn't have the demographic challenges of a place like, like Japan, for example. You mentioned a couple of times there about the impact of the marginal investor. I think that's a, a fascinating piece to, to drill into. We've seen um, the marginal investor really create some uh, turmoil on markets if we look at the GameStop and AMC and, and sort of the excitement that happened alongside these people. You know, Likewise, if we think about the market today, do we have this diverse group of investors that can help facilitate a market? That's, that's one of the real things that is quite fascinating. For a market to function, effectively, you do need these very different types of investors. But as we've started to change the market and fiduciaries are becoming much more uh, sophisticated, much more institutionalized, is there a danger that we've got probably you know, this homogeneity across the market, which you know doesn't allow for these spikes in markets to rebalance themselves and vis-a-vis 
the the whole push to to passive and smart beta and these styles of strategies, which actually makes the market difficult for fiduciaries to invest in? It's a difficult question, but curious to get your thoughts on it. So three reactions. One is it's still a very um, deep, diverse investor pool. You mentioned sovereign wealth funds earlier. If you look at the capital of sovereign wealth funds, those are long-term oriented, diversified investors, and they love to buy on market pullbacks. And and so they're they're going to come in quickly in an opportunistic way if if they feel like market volatility has created an opportunity. And we we saw that in terms of the speed of our recovery from the coronavirus-related market downturn. You know, we we were down 20, and then we were down another 20. But we were only down that second 20% for about two and a half weeks. And then we came back. So so you've got some very agile investors that will step in if they see an opportunity to grab a higher expected return and shift shift money from fixed income to equity very quickly if they feel like that's out of balance. I think that's good for the functioning capital markets in, in the sense that that's still deep. Um, on GameStop, my second comment is I was disturbed to see some media, some industry press, claiming that GameStop and the volatility there was some example of democratization of capital markets or, uh, you know, individuals taking back retail, taking back control of the capital markets from the hedge fund community. We've looked at it and the biggest beneficiaries of the GameStop saga are hedge funds in terms of who actually timed it right and made the money. So, and, and a lot of, indi- some individuals got wealthy, you know, they, they got it right. Other individuals lost lost their life savings, which leads me to my third point. And I'll preface this by saying I'm not very popular with my college roommates and college friends because some of them, they follow me on LinkedIn. They know I lead this big investment organization. So they call me and they want a stock pick. You know, they're like, Rich, what can I invest in? I just got my bonus. You know, what do you recommend? And I inevitably tell them an index fund. I believe in active management, but these are U.S. citizens and and under U.S. taxation, passive index funds are just a lot more tax effective. And and they think I'm like hiding something from them or lying to them. But but it, it is so awesome that the real democratization of finance, the, the great thing for retail investors is my, my mom, my mother-in-law, people who are not financially sophisticated can free, can free ride on all the market efficiency that the sovereign wealth funds and the Australian master trust community, the most sophisticated investors on the planet, you know, beat each other up for informational advantage and create this hugely efficient market. And then my mother-in-law can come in and buy it for single basis points and get a, get a passively traded index fund and sleep. And, and, you know, she'll read about GameStop and call me and want to play the market. And I'm, I'm like, please, grandma, don't do that. You know, you, you, why would you, you're not going to get any higher expected return. You're going to take a lot of risk. You, you, and then um, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned retirees and checking for equity fixed income. That happens when they need to live off their money and, and over glide path. But as, as economies are becoming more affluent, you know, one of the main objective investment objectives of many retirees is to leave the bequest to their children. So rather than annuitize their savings and, and time it so they, they need they don't overspend and they don't underspend, but they run out of money by definition exactly when they pass, they're setting aside money for bequests. And the investment time horizon on the bequest is long. It's multi-generational. And so, so you know, even even our retirees have a long term investment time horizon. I'll, I'll, I'll switch switch back to the comments on passive versus active because I think that that's still a fascinating piece that 
is really interesting because, yes, I, I totally understand the, the premise about low fees and the democratization of investing. It's very simple. It's almost become gamified, right? You just click a couple of buttons and you can invest any sum of money. Um, but I do question, you know, is that the right way that we should be allocating capital a- across markets? Should we just assume that the way to invest is passive for, for most people just because of the cost and the exposure perspective? Um, or are we actually losing something from you know capital efficiency in its ability to allocate capital to you know different parts of the market and also provide a market depth for investors because this is one of the really interesting challenges that comes about when we see these risk off style events there just is no there's no market liquidity and we've even seen it in very um, traditionally safe assets like fixed income so I'm curious to get your thoughts around you know for for fiduciaries. Is it really beneficial to the whole functioning of markets that we're moving more and more to a passive style of investment uh, universe? I would say uh, yes and no and yes. So yes, in the sense that to the extent a given retail investor base or defined contribution investor base trusts passive index fund investing and thereby gets diversified exposure to the equity markets, that's much better. I, I spent 11 years of my career in Japan, so I tend to use Japanese examples, but it's much better than having $8 trillion under mattresses or in bank deposits or postal savings deposits with a negative interest rate. You know, the, the population of people that are investing in those passive index funds, they're taking some risk. They're investing for the long term. They're financing investment by publicly traded companies. That's a good thing. So that's the first yes. The no is that if you look at what's happening with the number of individual publicly traded stocks globally in the developed markets, it's been going down for 30 years and continues to go down. If you look at how long companies are staying private and how big they get before they go public, a few years ago, we started talking about unicorns, meaning privately held companies with more than a billion dollars in market cap. And then within a year after I first heard of unicorn, we were talking about decacorns. So companies that had got to 10 billion market cap and had not gone public. And, and so the sovereign wealth fund community, the, the Australian master trust community, other sophisticated investment bases around the world, U.S. endowment foundations, U.S. public funds, they're putting more and more of their assets in the private markets. And so I I think the private markets are doing a really good job with capital allocation. You know, a privately held company can take risks that a publicly traded company seemingly can't. Um, There's exceptions. I shouldn't generalize. But there is something about having to report your earnings quarterly and if you you miss an earnings estimate, you're, you're voted out as a management team that's not working as well as the private markets. And, and I say that in a sense where investors are voting with their feet to put more money in the private markets and less in the public markets as a share of the total pie. So that, that's why I'd say no, you know, passive is not the be all and end all and perfect. Um, but then I'd say yes again, because having that huge pool of capital that's patient and, and wouldn't otherwise they're, they're not, we believe in active management. We've got 30 years history of recommending asset managers that on average beat the market. We believe in active management. But my college roommates, who are very smart petroleum engineers and literally rocket science working for NASA and other stuff, if they try to play in the market against the hedge funds and the sovereign wealth funds, they're going to get crushed. As smart as they are, they have no business doing that. My, my mom and my mother-in-law have no business doing that. And they can all invest in passive and get a really good expected return and and not be too far off the most sophisticated funds on the planet and their absolute return, despite spending almost no money and no time on it. 
And that, that to me is a great thing that, that lets everybody participate in global capitalism instead of just the elites. So final question, and let's take it back to the institutional investors. Um, you know, what do you see as the, the greatest risks for institutional investors going forward? Well, let's say the next five years for them. Well, the one that's going to bite us is probably one that we're not even thinking about today, almost by definition. If, if we knew it was out there, people would be working to mitigate it. You, you think about how the global financial crisis started. Um, you know, it, it, it just, uh, or, or the pandemic. I was at, I was at Davos. Uh, wow, it's only 13 months ago now. It seems like a decade. And, and we talked a little bit about this novel coronavirus in China, but having, got through SARS and MERS and Ebola and a bunch of other things that looked like they might spread and then didn't. Um, you know, we were all optimistic. Uh, Brexit had receded as a risk for the moment. U.S.-China stuff had receded for the moment. It, it just, things looked pretty optimistic. And then six weeks later, we were all locked down and, and in this were year. So I think the biggest risks are, are the ones that you you either didn't see coming or you maybe you, you knew it was a risk but you just didn't um didn't realize how 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 big and severe the impact would be um risks that we know about i i do hope that the u.s china trade tensions uh settle down and and that dialogue becomes more constructive and i i know that the u.s is not the only trading partner with which the chinese government's having having discussions. I'm sure you know more about the Australian dialogue than I do, but you know, China's economy rising is a huge growth locomotive for the world. And, and China, even though the coronavirus seems to have originated there, had a much better year last year economically, you know, has substantially reopened and is providing growth that that's going to help stimulate the rest of the planet. And the Chinese economic miracle, I think will continue to run. So that's that's great, but the world order has to accommodate the rise of China, the rise of India, a rebalancing of, of sort of the center of economic gravity and policy gravity into Asia. Taking back to climate change in a second, if 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 the Chinese and Indian economies and Chinese and Indian governments as as influenced as economies, if if we can't bend the curve on on carbon emissions in those two economies then we are in trouble on climate change. You know, the, the EU, North America un, under new administration, at least the U.S. part of North America under new administration, could, could adopt policies, but it's, it's a global problem. And if, if, the, if the two economies that are going to be the world's largest economies are already the world's largest economies on a purchase power parity adjusted basis, if they don't, if they don't adopt the same objectives and implement them effectively, I know I know that announcements have been made and policies have been adopted, but it, it has to show up in the actual emission statistics over time. And if that doesn't happen, then then we've got a big problem. And and that's where I think again, going back to our earlier discussion, if you if you invest in renewable technology and the price comes down to where a purely economic actor is going to use renewable energy instead of something that's carbon emitting, then we all win. You know, we never need, we don't then need overarching government policy because the, the hand of the free market is taking care of it for us. And and that's the explicit objective that's causing some of our most sophisticated sovereign wealth fund clients to slightly overweight their investment to renewable energy. It's not that they necessarily expect a policy tailwind, it's that they're trying to solve that that shock problem so that they can achieve their long-term investment objectives. One last area that you didn't touch on in terms of the risk is the overhang of debt. 
um, it, it comes up a lot um, and some people sit on the camp that don't worry, we've got MMT to save us, we've got central banks to save us. Curious to get your last thoughts on on um, that potential overhang. Um, I'm worried about it in two ways, and I'll link it to your question about big risk. I think one of the big risks is that we overshoot in our policy response to coronavirus. And there, there's a lot of debate in the U.S. right now about the size of the Biden administration's uh, stimulus package. And the concern is that um, the vaccine by itself is a huge stimulus if it makes progress, that there's recognition that the impact on wealth and income of the coronavirus has been massively unequal. So there are parts of the population that have become more poor and, and less wealthy. But but the part of the population that stayed employed and couldn't spend money on travel and couldn't spend money on entertainment has this huge pent-up demand to go out and spend. So we have these conversations about, are we going to have another decade called the Roaring Twenties, like we did after the Spanish influenza epidemic? And And but that's a huge economic stimulus. And then you throw fiscal stimulus on the back of that and continued monetary stimulus, because despite the run up in long-term interest rates, you know, I, I know the Australian central bank just kept at 0.1. Other central banks continue to, to be worried about full employment. We could overshoot and get an inflationary shock. And then, and then monetary authorities will have to step in and raise short-term interest rates, which has a big impact on the real economy and individuals and businesses haven't had to deal with that kind of shock in a long time because we've had accommodated policy since the end of the GSC. So that's going to really destroy some business models quickly. And, and so I'm worried about that overshooting dynamic, that, that we're going to go too far on the policy stimulus, have a wonderful couple of years in the real economy of growth, but then hit the wall. And, and, and then we will see people, if they've, if they've borrowed on floating rate loans and short-term interest rates have to go up, that's when we'd really have people crushed. People who have bought, borrowed long-term, you know, the rates rates have come up in the last few weeks, but they're not as high as they were three years ago, five years ago. So they're not yet in a position where that they have to roll over that debt at a higher interest rate. They have less good news in front of them when they roll over, but not bad news yet. But the short-term borrowers who are, you know, on a variable rate loan could get crushed quickly if, if, if central banks have to start reining things in. So I, I think that's, that's actually... Um, a big risk to our economy over the next couple of years. And, and the real economy could do, be doing well and the stock market could still crash because the market's discounting earnings over decades. If it, if it sees monetary authorities having to step in and pull things back, companies and individuals going bankrupt because they can't meet their debt load, that, that could be a big problem. Look, it's a, a real balancing act now, um, not just for the next couple of years, but even the next 10, 20 years. So look, Rich, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you too. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.